I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I don't know where I'm going, but I sure know where I've been. Here I go again on my own. It's high noon for Thursday, June 24th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also occasionally find me on Gab at I'm your moderator and the merch site is www.cancelcouture.com. Also, if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app and you have not done so before, please take 45 seconds and go rate the show five stars, please. And uh, leave a review if you like. I always appreciate that. And it actually does help. So today is the 155th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president, Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You all thought you knew exactly where you were going. And you thought the whole game would be over. Your destination would be reached and utopia achieved as soon as you got rid of the orange man. But that's not how it works. And winning one election is not a real goal. Unless your plan is simply an authoritarian takeover. And you plan to change the entire country in a way that can never be undone. And that's what it was, wasn't it, commies? Because you don't care about the issues. And you don't know anything. You just thought that once you got all the control back, you would have the control forever, and then you could just wipe your hands and never think about politics again. But that didn't work. So, sorry about your narrative, commies. And of course, I just have to extend a warm Thursday high noon welcome to all the redeemable communists out there. Hello, communists. Welcome to the show. I don't know how you started listening to this. (laughs) Maybe that was one of your friend's dead man switches and it just triggered this event. And now, without your prior knowledge, you're stuck listening to me as I mock and ridicule your very stupid and evil ideas. And I know what you're thinking. How could he possibly know that I have stupid and evil ideas? Well, commie, here's the thing. You're a commie. Also, you know you have stupid and evil ideas. And the reason you're going to keep listening to this for the rest of today and tomorrow and every other day for the rest of your life 
is because you're slowly realizing that you have to figure out how to immigrate back to America. And if you listened to the show before, you'd know all you have to do to immigrate back to America is get rid of all the stupid and evil commie ideas. You can do it, commie. Promise. So let's give it a shot. Okay? What do you say? Let's do it, commie. Immigrate on back. We'll welcome you. In fact, we will be overjoyed that you decided to rejoin America. Because, you know, we need the help. And more than the help, we need you to stop resisting reality. That would help everyone so much, including all the people you're pretending to help. Now, I've been thinking for the last day about elements of uncertainty. And I think that all of us have become extremely comfortable or at least accustomed to operating in a situation of what seems to be never-ending uncertainty. And it's been that way since we woke up on November 4th, I suppose. Leading up to the election, it was clear if you were paying attention to anything other than the communist state media and the polling that the red wave was real and it was flowing and Donald Trump was going to win in a massive landslide. And of course, that's exactly what he did. But we woke up on the morning of November 4th to find that the commies were really going to try to cheat that big. They shut down the voting on November 3rd. They introduced hundreds of thousands of fake votes for Joe Biden that night. And by morning, they expected the entire country just to take their word for it, that all those votes were legit. And a few days later, I believe it was Sunday the 7th or Saturday the 7th. Let's see. <laughs> Four, five, six. Yeah, Saturday the 7th. There we go. The media announced that Joe Biden was the president-elect. And all of a sudden, the office of the president-elect opened. And all of us were like, wait, what the hell? That guy didn't win. And since that moment, we have dealt with uncertainty. How are we going to get the fraud out? How are we going to get the people to see it? How are we going to get the state legislatures to act? How are we going to get Congress and the Senate and Mike Pence to fulfill their oath to the Constitution and make sure that they are not trying to initiate and inaugurate a fake illegitimate president? And so we watched as the media lied and CISA released their ridiculous statement and Barr made his comments, which got blown, by the way, way out of proportion. The FBI wasn't investigating anything. The courts wouldn't even look at the evidence. They started pretending that Sidney Powell was some crazed conspiracy theorist, that Rudy Giuliani was a joke rather than the guy who took down the New York mafia. And they went through with approving Joe Biden in the Electoral College on the 6th. They went through with some 
sham of an inauguration that can anyone say definitely happened at least in Washington at that time? That's a tough one, man. But we don't even know how to interpret that because to not have doubt about that event was to not watch it while paying attention. But to deny that it happened is also wrong on some level. So you enter this realm of uncertainty where nothing is totally true and nothing is totally false and all information exists on this sliding scale where it may be you're like 75, 25, this is true or 90, 10, this is false. And that's a weird place to be. That's how a lot of us were after one six. You know, we know just based on what the MAGA movement, the America First movement is, based on the fact that we know a lot of people involved in it, a lot of people who saw the election fraud from the beginning. We look at one six, we see all the peaceful, I guess, rallies. I wouldn't even call them protests, but rallies and gatherings for MAGA events before one six. And it was never MAGA creating violence. People were getting attacked, occasionally defending themselves. And yeah, you had the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and whatever else who were clearly infiltrated by feds and they were involved in some of the problems. But it was never MAGA. It was never MAGA people. There were plenty of big rallies, hundreds of thousands of people where there were no violent events, no looting, no burning, no attacking homes and businesses. No threatening average citizens on the street. No destroying restaurants and threatening their diners. That ain't MAGA. So we watch the events on 1-6 and we know, like, wait, that's not what we do, right? But at the same time, we also know how unjust the thing that's happening inside that building is. And we know that people like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and Kevin McCarthy and Mike Pence. They need some event to take the heat off them. And same thing with rhino senators, Romney's like Kelly Leffler. She says she's going to contest and object. And then she uses the very violent insurrection as an excuse not to, as if all of a sudden the underlying information changed. All of a sudden, Trump didn't really win. All of a sudden, we can't see with our own eyes, how obvious it is what's happening. None of that changed, but she sure did. Even though just the day before, she had an election stolen from her. And so we can see some of the violence outside. We can see the reaction in public. We can see the reaction from the commies or redeemable commies in our lives. And so we know that something's wrong, but we're also seeing video about how the cops are letting people in and the violence that happens inside is only against a Trump supporter. We hear stories about how laptops were taken. We have pictures of a man with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. 
which makes a laptop being taken entirely possible. There are news reports about her laptop being taken, but don't worry. It was only for presentations. And then we start getting reporting from Revolver and elsewhere about who the people were at the Capitol and the level of infiltration from the feds. And now that whole event seems to be nothing more than a false flag, an event staged to distract people from the issue at hand, which is election fraud, and to make it impossible for the people who were prepared to object to ever make their case with the American people watching. They basically did what they did to change the channel on every American. It's like, hey, we were watching the election fraud show. Oh, now we're watching the Trump supporters are terrorists show. What happened to the election fraud show? Somebody just changed the channel in front of me. And some of these events, they just have this magnitude where you can't understand them initially. Because even just watching something like 1-6, you saw people going into the Capitol, breaking windows. You know, you saw people pushing and shoving. Some of that was just a reaction to the fact that the cops were firing on them with rubber bullets and tear gas. But you can't deny that something bad was going on. False flag or not, staged or not, infiltrated or not. A result of leftists and Antifa dressed as Trump supporters or not. It's just too much to immediately unpack. And so the narrative just comes at you trying to bulldoze you. Keep you quiet. Keep you unsure. Keep you scared. Keep you worried about your future. Because they turned the censorship up so high that they scare people into self-censorship. And so it takes longer and longer and longer for the truth to come out. We're still unpacking that event now, five months later. It's mostly unpacked. I don't think anyone on our side doubts what that was and what the purpose of it was. But if the purpose was distracting for, from election fraud, it worked in the short term because they still had enough of a, a loud mouthpiece on the media that they could push us over for a few days or a few weeks, a couple months. And everybody there in the middle who might have been open to the idea of election fraud all of a sudden gets scared. And anyone who really doubts it and definitely doesn't want it to happen, but they have this feeling that they know election fraud is real, they all double down. Because now they think that they have a chance of making this go away forever. And turning what could be a substantial political loss into this massive political gain. So it takes a long time to unwind. And we are now in a time where events of this magnitude seem to be occurring more often. And I don't mean violent events necessarily, but I just mean big newsworthy events, things that are hard to understand, things that you actually cannot understand right away, stuff that's going to take some time. And just in the last 24 hours, we've had a couple of these, okay? There is a 12-story building in Miami that was built in the 1980s, and half of it just collapsed overnight. How does that happen? The clearest answer is that it doesn't happen. Has anyone ever seen a building just unexplainably collapse, a building that size? 
I haven't. If it does happen, if it's ever happened, I'm unaware of it. And considering we have what? Hundreds of thousands, millions of buildings, similar buildings that don't collapse ever. There's ample reason to be concerned about that and want to know, hey, how the hell did that happen? Can anyone tell me or is this just going to be like that whole Vegas shooting where we get an excuse and then we get to forget about it forever or like the explosion in Nashville on Christmas of last year? Oh, it was just some guy's van. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. Got it. So so you're saying it was a van and now that guy's dead and there's no explanation. Oh, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it could be a while before we understand this, because if there is anything amiss in this situation, you can expect the mainstream media will try to move on from it as quickly as possible. And then anyone who says anything about it will be a conspiracy theorist. But that's not the only event, and it's not even the weirdest. The weirdest is that yesterday in the afternoon, John McAfee, who created the McAfee antivirus software and who strangely declared himself a presidential candidate a few times and has mostly been living in exile, drinking and doing drugs and smoking cigars with his weird tattoos and his suspenders and girls who are way too young for him. But yesterday we were told that he was found dead as a result of suicide in a Spanish prison. And here we are 24 hours later, and I don't think anyone has any clue what this is about. Or I shouldn't say anyone. Some people are saying really interesting things about it. I never followed McAfee enough to know if those interesting things carry much weight. But I do know that this is every bit as weird as the Jeffrey Epstein suicide and maybe even weirder. And so I want to come back to the McAfee thing. But before that, I want to read this piece from Lee Smith yesterday in the Epic Times. Affidavits raise more questions about FBI's role in Trump probe. Affidavits filed in a federal court on June 21st raised crucial questions about the FBI's role in the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign's efforts to vilify her opponent, Donald Trump, as a Russian agent. The FBI obtained a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant to spy on the Trump team based on a dossier of memos alleging Trump's ties to Russia that was filed by Clinton campaign contractor Christopher Steele. But the newly released court documents suggest the FBI may have helped shape the anti-Trump plot at its origins. The affidavits are the latest revelation to come from the ongoing defamation suit that the owners of Alpha Bank, Russia's largest commercial bank, have brought against Fusion GPS, the communications firm that hired Steele to compile Trump-Russia reports on behalf of the Clinton campaign. In one of Steele's memos, Alpha Bank principals Mikhail Friedman... Peter Avon and German Kahn are alleged to have engaged in corrupt practices. 
Steele claims that this report and the others are sourced to a Russian national he hired, Igor Danchenko, who in turn says his information came from a network of Russia-based sources. The affidavits filed this week were sworn by five Russian nationals who say Danchenko's allegations that they served as sources for Steele's reporting are false. This may put Danchenko in a bind. Finding himself at the mercy of angry billionaires who are eager to clear their names and the reputation of their business, Danchenko's clearest path out of financial and legal risk may be to reveal everything he knows about the anti-Trump plot. Keep that in mind. The affidavit signed by Russian financial journalist Ivan Vorontsov is the most significant of the five documents. Vorontsov said that he has been friends with Danchenko since 2013 and met him three times in 2016. According to him, Danchenko said that he was employed by Fusion GPS and its co-founders, Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch. This appears to contradict what Danchenko told the FBI in a January 2017 interview. According to the transcript, Danchenko did not have any visibility into Steele's end clients. Danchenko's attorney reaffirmed his client's claim, never asked and was never told about the final clients. Another section from Vorontsov's affidavit may prove even more significant. He states that during a June 2016 reception at the U.S. ambassador's residence in Moscow, he was whisked away and invited to have a discussion with representatives of the FBI about Mr. Danchenko. Though Vorontsov does not give any more details, the FBI's interest in him is noteworthy. According to the Department of Justice's December 2019 Inspector General's report, the FBI claims Steele didn't provide them with Danchenko's name. Moreover, the FBI says it didn't speak with Danchenko until January 2017. And yet seven months earlier, the FBI was seeking information about Danchenko from a man he named as a dossier source. In the January 2017 interview, Danchenko told the FBI that he'd given Steele the names of some of his sources. One name he relayed to Steele has been redacted in the interview transcript and annotated as source two, which is how Vorontsov has been identified in public reporting. If, as the FBI says, Steele didn't give them the names of his sources, how did they know to connect Danchenko to Vorontsov? The other issue therefore raised by Vorontsov's account is chronology. The FBI says it did not begin its investigation into the Trump team's alleged ties to Russia until July 31st, 2016. It also claims it didn't receive dossier reports until July 5th, when Steele's FBI handler met him in London. Vorontsov's affidavit suggests the FBI may have been active in the anti-Trump operation at least a month earlier. June 2016 is a key period in the dossier's timeline. It's when the dossier was constructed. Fusion GPS documents and public testimony show that between October 2015 and May 2016, the opposition research firm was focused on public reports of Trump's alleged ties to organized crime figures in the former Soviet states. But within a month, Fusion GPS's focus changed. The first memo in the dossier is dated June 20th, alleging that, according to Russian government officials, including senior intelligence officers and diplomats, Trump had been compromised by Moscow's spy services. Indeed, Russian President Vladimir Putin's senior advisors controlled the Trump file on behalf of Putin himself. So why did the subject matter of F Fusion GPS's reporting swing so dramatically? Simpson and Fritsch say that's because they brought on Steele in May. According to their account, the British ex-spy and expert in all matters Russian found that Trump's most shocking ties weren't with Russian organized crime figures, but to Russian government officials. The affidavits show why Steele was able to gather such remarkably in-depth and earth-shattering intelligence in only a month's time. It was fabricated. 
The dossier's shocking allegations were invented either by Danchenko or Steele or Fusion GPS, or more likely a combination of the three. But that doesn't explain why the fabric of the story has changed. From May 20th to June 20th, 2016, the subject morphed from organized crime to intelligence matters regarding foreign officials. In other words, a subject tailored to win the FBI a FISA warrant to spy on the Trump team. Did the FBI receive Steele's fraudulent intelligence reports or did it help create them? The five affidavits give more evidence that the dossier operation relied on sources upon sources, that is, cutouts, in part to avoid the legal jeopardy that Danchenko now faces. Steele couldn't be held accountable if he was just relaying what he heard from Danchenko, who couldn't be blamed if his information came from other sources. The five affidavits have left Danchenko alone and exposed. And so one important question is, if Steele hid behind Danchenko, who was hiding behind Steele? Now, this is a fairly significant next piece of this story, which has been unraveling now for five full years. This has been going on, as they say, from May, June 2016 in an attempt to get Trump and screw with Russia, which is seemingly the entire motivation of the deep state this entire time. A full five years of nothing but that. Now, it was my understanding, and I believe the common understanding, that Fusion GPS was hired by Hillary Clinton to get dirt on Donald Trump. And we can see that even in this story, of course, because they were working on this stuff well before June 2016, as this article refers to. But the idea was that these stories from this dossier were planted in all sorts of different ways. And then this dossier was used to get the FISA that allowed American intelligence to spy on Donald Trump's campaign and members of his campaign. This changes the chronology around. This puts the FBI at the forefront of this corruption, potentially even ahead of Hillary Clinton. Although... <laughs> I guess you could go either way with that. It's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Did they get ahead of Hillary Clinton or did Hillary Clinton tell them to get ahead of Hillary Clinton? <laughs> it could be either. But this is just one more piece of FBI corruption and FBI involvement in corruption. And in fact, potentially corruption and illegality and abuse of the justice system all to achieve the FBI's own goals. Now, maybe I am connecting things that do not connect, and I am totally open to that being a possibility. But as I said, these are very uncertain times, and this is a very strange and uncertain event. People believe that John McAfee has been keeping himself alive and free for years because he has some really dark stuff about some very powerful public figures. And there is talk, talk that was, I guess, initiated by McAfee of McAfee having a dead man switch, which if you're not familiar with the term is the idea that your death will trigger an event. 
So if McAfee is declared dead, the dead man switch is flipped. Whatever he has to release gets released by people who obviously are not him. And then all that information goes public. And that's how he keeps himself alive. Because once you have that dead man switch and they know that that's active, if they kill you, that thing comes out. So we've witnessed over the last few months that the whole Fusion GPS story, they're kind of trying to polish around the edges of this story to make it make sense for people to preset a narrative so that when stuff does come out, people already have another idea in their head about what it means. And this includes Mueller. This includes the impeachment. This includes Biden. It includes Obama. It includes the CIA and the FBI and the Clintons. It's the whole enchilada, the whole kit and caboodle. But then there's this this morning from Jack Posobiec. The U.S. Embassy in Spain handles all extraditions of American citizens, such as John McAfee. This would be overseen by a position known as legal attache in Madrid called a L-E-G-A-T, legat. The legat office is run by the FBI through their international operations division. And then one of the people in the online community who does flight tracking Post pictures of a flight, a military plane, leaving Madrid yesterday and flying on back to Washington. A U.S. military plane leaving from Madrid, flying back to Washington. So, did they pick up McAfee? Did they go kill McAfee? Or is all of this just coincidence and unrelated? It's very uncertain. But... An FBI totally compromised by the deep state, totally compromised by the Clintons, totally in the control of the Clintons and others, which we can see from the Lee Smith piece and which is fairly common knowledge at this point. That same FBI goes over to get John McAfee. He was supposed to be extradited to the U.S., And then all of a sudden he's found dead in a Spanish prison cell. That's awfully weird, isn't it? And then there's this piece written by John McAfee on November 3rd, 2016 in the International Business Times. John McAfee on Clinton. The FBI is either incompetent or corrupt in dealing with Hillary's emails. I finally got around to watching the interrogation of FBI Director James Comey by Congressman Jim Jordan. It was an eye-opening epiphany, and it once and for all made it clear to me that the cyber technologists within the FBI are either the most incompetent on this planet or corrupt in handling the Hillary Clinton email saga. I was watching the interrogation with lukewarm interest up to the point that the congressman asked Comey if the FBI was aware of Paul Combetta's inquiry on Reddit about how to strip an email address from a server's email database. Mr. Combetta, by the way, is the technical expert who ultimately deleted 33,000 of Hillary Clinton's emails. Two points stood out. Firstly, Comey was not sure that the FBI was aware of Combetta's post on Reddit. He knew Clinton's email address had been removed, but he believed that the emails were still intact. Secondly, Combetta testified that Clinton was afraid that her email address would be given to the public, so he removed it from the emails. Now, any competent software engineer can take the above two conditions and will come to the same conclusion that I reached. 
Clinton or someone in her staff came up with the bright idea of stripping all of the headers from her emails, rendering the remaining text virtually useless. They would have no from or to fields, no date stamps, no timestamps, and no information on who may or may not have been copied on the emails. And it could be done seemingly in a legal fashion by stating, we only removed Hillary's email address for privacy reasons. The fact that the entire header also disappeared was an unexpected artifact of the process. Oops, my bad was all someone had to say. Brilliant, I admit, but due to extenuating circumstances, it didn't work out the way it was planned, for reasons I will explain later. So the radical step of using BleachBit to wipe the emails was eventually taken. Combetta's testimony that Clinton was afraid that her email address would be leaked to the public is the first sign of something being not quite right. To my knowledge, and as common knowledge to most people, the FBI nor any other investigative body of the federal government has ever made public the email address of any target of an investigation, whether charges were filed or not. Clinton is smart enough to be running for president, so this gem of information should be well known to her. As to the few members of Congress who might get access through an investigation, all of them already have her email address, and she has emailed most of them multiple times. Either Combetta's testimony is blatantly false or Clinton is completely in the dark about obvious policies and procedures within the Justice Department, which any presidential candidate should know. I cannot believe that Clinton is ignorant of the fact that her emails would absolutely not be released to the public. I doubt anyone would believe this. Are we forced to believe then that Combetta's testimony is untrue? Now let's examine the technical side of this affair. Combetta is no slouch when it comes to information science. You'd expect a person of the highest caliber and competence to be in charge of a server containing above top secret national documents, and Combetta does not disappoint. So I have no problem with his talents. And that's the problem I'm having. A Reddit user strongly believed to be Combetta, called Stone Tier, posted the following on Reddit in 2014, one day after the House Select Committee on Benghazi had reached an agreement with the State Department on the production of all her emails. And here is the Reddit post. Hello, all. I may be facing a very interesting situation where I need to strip out a VIP's, very VIP, email address from a bunch of archived email that I have both in a live exchange mailbox as well as a PST file. Basically, they don't want the VIP's email address exposed to anyone and want to be able to either strip out or replace the email address in the to from fields in all of the emails we want to send out. I'm not sure if something like this is possible with PowerShell or exporting all of the emails to MSG and doing find replaces with a batch processing program of some sort. Does anyone have experience with something like this and or suggestions on how this might be accomplished? The strange thing about this is that any first year computer science student could answer this question correctly, even while drunk at a frat party. And the answer is simple. No fucking way. At least not without tens of thousands of hours of manual labor. 33,000 emails, or a piece of software that you would have to write yourself, which would require more time to code and test than the subpoena for the emails allowed. Here are a couple of the expected responses from Reddit. There is no supported way to do what you're asking. You can only delete emails after they're stored in the database. You can't change them. If there was a feature in exchange that allowed this, it could result in major legal issues. There may be ways to hack a solution, but I'm not aware of any. And here's another answer. To my knowledge, there's no way to edit existing messages. That's a possibility for a discovery nightmare. To strip rename on outbound inbound, you could rewrite it with a transport rule. Email systems are designed to make it difficult to modify the sender, receiver, date and time for obvious legal reasons. However, stripping the entire header is trivial. People frequently want just the body of text. 
It's not believable that Combetta, a person charged with the technical responsibility for the Secretary of State's personal server, would not be fully conversant with Information Science 101 regarding how email servers function. It's simply inconceivable. Even if I were high on a mix of acid, meth, and K and had swallowed a half bottle of scotch to take the edge off the meth, I believe I could still remember that simple fact. (laughs) Man, John McAfee is a... He is a weird dude. The inescapable conclusion, to me at least, is that the post was carefully crafted to provide a record indicating that Combetta was merely attempting to save Clinton the potential embarrassment of having her email address released to the public. If Combetta did indeed try to modify the header to change an email address, then the result would most assuredly have been the total destruction of the header. Email providers create safeguards against such modifications. A world-class hacker could do it with a lot of work and time, which Combetta did not have. Again, Combetta should know all of this well. If not, then Clinton hired an idiot, which does not recommend her well. As to why this process did not achieve its goal, blame WikiLeaks. Even with no headers, the redacted emails would still be in sequence in the email database. It would not take much to write a forensics program to cross-reference known email senders, receivers, dates, and times with the redacted emails. I suspect that 95% or more of the missing data could be recovered. Has the FBI thought of this? That's the question at the heart of it all. So this is from 2016. And John McAfee seems to have more than just a passing interest in this issue. He also sounds like he is aware of corruption in the FBI and very likely believes Hillary Clinton is very corrupt herself. So what we have is this guy who is basically exiled, a fugitive in some sense, and he's meant to be extradited to the U.S. yesterday. He is, we're told, found dead in his prison cell in a prison in Madrid. More or less the same way we heard about Jeffrey Epstein. And then a military plane returns from Madrid to Washington. And the agency who'd be handling the extradition is the FBI. There is a whole lot of stuff about the Clintons, the FBI, and corruption in the highest levels of our government coming out right now. And this is no accident. This stuff was always going to come out eventually. And, I mean, many of us on some level already know big chunks of this story. But consider the level of uncertainty we still have. It's hard to say right now, of course, what any of this means. We might not know whether or not John McAfee really did trigger some dead man switch for days or weeks or potentially months. Or I suppose it's possible that we all may hear about it before you even listen to this episode. And we may hear that the building in Florida just collapsed into the Florida swamp. Sometimes the uncertain things get really certain really quickly. Sometimes when they get really certain really quickly, it's a good sign that they're being used as a false flag and we shouldn't believe any of the story we're hearing. That's where discernment comes in. But then to top it off, on John McAfee's Instagram, about a half an hour after we hear he's dead, a picture of a cue 
pops up at his as his most recent post. And within, I don't know, minutes or maybe a couple of hours at the most. John McAfee's Instagram page is taken down and now no one can see any of the content on it. And then today and Anon on one of the boards posts this. And by the way, I just said Anon. Is it okay? Are you feeling okay? I didn't say a QAnon because that's not a real thing. Just an Anon, an anonymous poster on the boards doing research, trying to communicate what they think or believe or can prove. It's interesting. That's the point. The point is to open your mind to possibilities and then see whether or not those possibilities map onto reality with the more we learn about reality. So I'm going to go through this post just to put these ideas out there because we're going to learn more and more and more about exactly where this is going. But there is a lot going on here. And it seems like it all revolves around whether or not McAfee really does have this dead man switch because a lot of people were posting some of McAfee's old tweets that talk about the dead man switch. He posted a picture of his arm after having a dollar sign followed by the word whacked on it. W-H-A-C-K-D. He didn't put the E in the tattoo for whatever reason. But the dollar sign is before it, which leads people to the idea that he might be referring to a cryptocurrency. So here's the post. McAfee dead in prison. Cryptic Q post on socials. Old crypto wallet named Epstein awakens to send to random addresses. And he posts a link to an Etherscan IO address. Old Q post references the plus plus plus. Rare flag. John's Instagram was taken down. That's McAfee. Whacked. Sent to a burn address. All data getting pruned. Save everything. Who is Gavin McClelland? Gavin posted odd music video with John on his Twitter. 31 terabyte file on Pirate Bay matches John's old tweet about 31 terabyte dead man switch. An NFT is a pick file, video, or song converted into a crypto token. And it's permanently recorded on the blockchain when it's uploaded. That's how John is going to do it. They can't take down the entire Ethereum blockchain. John knows this, so he's using it for the dead man switch file. The NFT is going to be a magnet URL. And what a magnet URL is, is basically, uh, I think it's kind of like a torrent file. It's if you follow the URL, then you can download whatever's at the URL, like a torrent. And Pirate Bay, of course, is a torrent site that uses magnet URLs. And if you have a program like Transmission or something similar, you're able to download from it. The WACT tokens are activating tons of shitbox VPSs he rented with crypto and left to idle till they received a transaction. Untraceable, unstoppable remote activation. Everyone is going to torrent this file. McAfee left spreading the word to everyone else that hated this global demon machine. Now that is an extremely interesting theory. You can say all you want. Yeah, well, some Anon wrote that. Yeah, okay, you're right. Some Anon wrote that. 
The difference between an Anon and a news reporter is that you don't know the Anon's name. And they post on the internet on a message board rather than on a blog, right? So if you got all that information from a Daily Beast article, you would attribute some level of legitimacy to it that you're denying this post because it's on a board from an Anon. And I think that that is one of the things that we have to stop doing. We know how bad the mainstream media is, right? And you can talk all day about how Anons get things wrong. I've gotten things wrong. We all get things wrong, especially when we're talking about timelines, right? This is a theory and it's presented as a theory. This is for you to think about and maybe help you understand reality, denying it just because of the place it came from means that you are refusing to examine certain information. And that's why I always say information among other information. The Q posts may or may not be useful. They may or may not lead you to accurate conclusions depending on how you use them. But if you're using them only for information among other information to see what maps onto reality, then it's not dangerous to look at them. It's not dangerous to consider that they might be right or that they might be able to teach you something or they might be able to lead you into a new understanding of an important issue. What this post is saying is crazy and it's genius. All right. So people believe that there was a back, that there's back end data on the picture he posted to Instagram. And that that data has a code that may, in fact, unlock access to this NFT. And I think I've talked about NFTs on here before. My understanding of them is probably just an average one, not by any means an expert on it. But I do know, for instance, that and I do believe that this will be something that happens more in the future, but I'm pretty sure Kings of Leon released their last album as an NFT so that someone can buy that NFT directly from them. And then they own, then that person owns the Kings of Leon album and all the rights that go with it. And Kings of Leon takes the payment for the album. And now they don't have to worry about record royalties or Spotify plays. And NFT stands for non-fungible token. Okay. The thing can't be changed. It exists as it is in the blockchain. And so this poster is suggesting that an NFT of this 31 terabyte file with all of this information exists and that everyone in the world would be able to download and access this 31 terabyte info dump. And if the theory about the dead man switch is correct, if the theory about McAfee holding on to all of this stuff to keep himself alive, if all that's correct, then what we may have here is absolutely world changing information. And I think I mentioned something about this a long time ago, but you've got these guys like Julian Assange and John McAfee, I guess, and in a different sense, Jeffrey Epstein, all of these people have information 
that has before or potentially can really change how the world operates. They possess information that could break society potentially. So you got to have your eye on this, even though we can't understand it. You know, it's totally fine to talk about this and discuss it and try to understand it with other people without taking a firm position on it anywhere. Everybody wants things to be black and white. They want them to be certain, but we don't live in a time of certainty. What we do know is that the actual media lies to us almost all the time. And yet we still give them some sort of credibility. Whereas we can see people like me or like Anons out there or like other people trying to figure out what all this means and make sense of it. And we have this tendency to dismiss those sorts of sources the first time they're off about something. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, they were totally wrong about this. So, like, I just can't trust them. So I guess I believe the main story. Oh, wait, you believe the main story from the media source, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you can't trust. Right. It's just a completely different standard. And I'm not complaining. I understand why it's this way. We were accustomed to this. We were conditioned to react this way. But it doesn't make it right and it doesn't make it functional. McAfee said a bunch of times that he was not going to kill himself. And people who commit suicide are odd candidates for dead man switches. You know what I mean? If you have the dead man switch, it's because you're trying to stay alive, right? Like, what would be the point of keeping it all secret if you didn't care about whether you lived or died? Especially not if you were suicidal. So is McAfee dead or alive? Who knows? Is there a dead man switch? Don't know. Could this still be one of the biggest stories of all time? Absolutely. Can I tell you that it will be? No idea. I have no idea. But on some level, I do love the uncertainty. Because the uncertainty allows you to learn and it allows you to experiment with ideas. And experimenting with ideas is how you increase your understanding. And it's how you hone your discernment. But uncertainty is just going to be a part of our life. Maybe forever. Maybe it always was. Maybe the idea that any of this was ever certain at all was the illusion. And a lot of people would be like, well, yeah, man, that's totally accurate. Some people take a long time to come to that, man. I was one of them. But here's another uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. When the public fully understands that the election was a complete and total fraud. But Michael Flynn spoke about it last night, and I'm going to play it. So this is a conversation on Ann Vandersteel's show, and Patrick Byrne is one of the other guests. And then the other person on screen, besides the three of them, I have no idea who that is. Trump did win, and the remedy is to install him in somewhere or the other, either through another election or runoff, or perhaps the Supreme Court says, plunk, you're back in. Why don't we make you vice president, General Flynn? Here, here. Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> Second it. 
<laughs> yeah. Let's give them something to talk about, for goodness sakes. Come on, who's with right, you? Right, <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, first of all, you know, what should happen if we find out that there are a, a sufficient number of electoral votes that are reversed because they're because proper audits are done and Trump now has over 270, right? Then you reinstate the you reinstate the guy and you and you get rid of the guy that's there. And everybody's gonna go, oh, this is unconstitutional. Bullshit. I'm sorry. Exactly. That, is, that is not the case. Hey, there have been people, you know, at different levels in different uh, political offices that have been taken out and the, and the rightful, the rightfully elected person has been put in. So, so, you know, we, it, that is unprecedented at the presidential level, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen or that it cannot happen. So if, if that, that's why they don't want these audits to happen. So that's number one. Number two, right. you know, when, let's just say when that happens, when that happens, then what? Now, now what do you do? Because you have a, a president and a vice president that were duly elected by about 80 million people on the 3rd of July of 2020. And now you go, you, you know, you, you allow the, the, the course of their, uh, of their tenure to, to continue. But now you have to make some other decisions about potentially third terms. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios here, you know, and what to do. So. We're, we're, we are in uncharted waters, okay? We're in uncharted waters, for sure. Uncharted waters, to be sure. So, it seems to me that we have total uncertainty about the constitutional question. What will the mechanics of Biden's removal and Trump's reinstatement be? That is totally unknown at this point. Obviously, I've speculated about it as have many other people. But there has been no speculation about it in the mainstream media. They are all saying that it simply cannot happen. Oh, there's just no way to do it. The only way you can remove a president is through an election or an impeachment or the 25th Amendment. Now, I imagine that if the people in his cabinet want to not be charged with treason, for instance, they might happily take Biden out with the 25th Amendment. That could happen. Impeachment doesn't seem likely at all because, as I've said before, there aren't enough legitimate sitting members of Congress in the Senate to successfully impeach him, I don't think. It would be awfully weird if uh, a Senate with only two senators remaining or six senators remaining was about to impeach a president and who knows how many congressmen would actually be there. A new election is totally possible, but maybe we're even looking at it wrong talking about that because Joe Biden isn't a legitimate president. Joe Biden didn't win an election. The states were fraudulently certified. Those fraudulent certifications cause states to send false electors to the electoral college where all of the people whose job it was to confirm those certifications did so in a fraudulent manner. And the inauguration itself was a farce or maybe not, but it sure looked like one. So considering all that, does Joe Biden even need to be removed as president? Because he's not.
president. You know, Donald Trump in that interview with David Brody on Real America's Voice on Monday, he made it very clear that he never conceded. He never conceded. He never passed off the presidency to Joe Biden. In fact, he took Air Force One and went to Mar-a-Lago with the nuclear launch codes, if you recall. And even if you have too much doubt to believe the big sting story, right, that the entire election was a sting run by military intelligence to catch all of these criminals and cheaters as they stole an American presidency, even if that's too much, it's totally possible that the sting could have happened down the line. They, the military could have seen what happened and then just chosen this as the new route. Maybe or maybe not re-inaugurating Trump. Maybe or maybe not Trump still has control of the military. It's hard to say. You can say it's likely or unlikely, but it's hard to say it's true or false. It exists on a sliding scale because we just don't know enough. There's plenty of evidence to say that Joe Biden has some control of the military as we watch Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley testify to Congress that the military doesn't endorse critical race theory while they are themselves endorsing the principles of critical race theory and the reading of critical race theory books. And we had the National Guard surrounding the U.S. Capitol, surrounding Washington, D.C. for a couple of months. But is that Biden controlling the military? Or is that just simply governors sending the National Guard there? Again, even something that obvious, something that real, something we all saw with our own eyes. Yes, the Capitol is surrounded by walls and military fully armed. It's not possible for us to know all of this right now. The reporting's not done. It's not out there. There are just big pieces of the puzzle that are missing. And we can think our way through filling those holes, but we can't be certain. Nonetheless, it's entirely possible that all of the actions we have seen since the election, I mean, and obviously before, but I'm just talking about in terms of confirming Joe Biden and then staging that inauguration and now people pretending that Joe Biden is, in fact, the real and legitimate president. Are being allowed to happen. That these are such obvious crimes, they're not being stopped because they want to get all of the proof and get every last aspect of the conspiracy, not a theory, just a reality, to steal the 2020 election. Like it is definitionally a conspiracy. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy theory. The truth is that it was a conspiracy. There are, as I've said many times, Thousands, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people involved in this. All of these little working parts from the little small time cheaters in election precincts all the way up to Barack Obama and John Brennan and their 
foreign allies that engaged in the theft of this election. And the important thing is to get them all. We want them all. But why would we have to replace a president according to traditional constitutional methods when the president is illegitimate and only pretending to be president based on the fraud of countless public officials who can and will be held accountable for that fraud. Fraud vitiates everything, right? And that's what we're coming up on here. We're not long from knowing this stuff beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, it might still be six more weeks till we get the full report on the Arizona audit, but there's plenty happening in the meantime. And this stuff is now just being spoken about in the open. OAN did a segment on treason. And good for them. Donald Trump doesn't hesitate at all to talk about election fraud. And his message is getting out there. And he's got a rally this weekend where he is 100% going to talk about election fraud. And in that same video, by the way, Michael Flynn suggested that we should be on the lookout for false flag events, either to reroute the narrative completely or at least to take our eyes off the ball. But election fraud is the story. Now, last night on Rachel Maddow, I'll spare you the audio today, and I would love to make fun of her, but this is going to go long anyway, so got to do what I got to do. But she had this whole segment on how she was overjoyed that a group of three Republicans and one Democrat in Michigan released a report where they said that everyone's election fraud claims were bunk, as Rachel Maddow likes to say, or bunk them, as Joy Reid likes to say. But everything was totally debunked. And of course, it wasn't. So Matthew DiPerno, the lawyer in Bill Bailey's Michigan case, released this letter this afternoon. On June 23rd, 2021, the Michigan Senate Oversight Committee released its report on the November 2020 election in Michigan. With this report, the Michigan Senate is attempting to cover up evidence of election fraud in the November 2020 general election. They are also using the mantle of government to proactively intimidate anyone from speaking out about election fraud. These attempts to silence citizens are a clear attempt to criminalize political speech and a violation of the First Amendment right to free speech, freedom to assemble, and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Notwithstanding the unconstitutional and illegal intimidation tactics by corrupt politicians, we will continue to expose the truth to the American people. The Michigan Senate has also called on the attorney general to conduct an unconstitutional and illegal criminal investigation of political speech. We caution Dana Nessel and Senator McBroom that we will ultimately present our evidence to a jury. No corrupt politicians will dictate how the jury interprets the evidence of overwhelming election fraud. I like your phrase, Matthew DiPerno. The Michigan Senate has refused to meet with our attorneys and a team of forensic experts to review actual evidence of election fraud. Reportedly, Senator McBroom, who has been accused in the past of violating people's constitutional rights, has gone so far as to instruct the Republican caucus not to review evidence for themselves. If they don't review the evidence, they can continue to say they have seen no evidence. Nevertheless, we have so far released 19 reports on election fraud throughout multiple legal briefs with the 13th Circuit Court in Antrim County. We are not done. Additional reports will be released soon. 
the Michigan Senate failed to properly address any of the evidence submitted in the 19 reports available for everyone to review at www.depernolaw.com. That's D-E-P-E-R-N-O law.com. You can also see a great deal of the evidence at letsfixstuff.org. These reports expose inherent vulnerabilities and weak or non-existent security protocols of voting machines. But more importantly, these reports also expose how the voting system and election in Antrim County was actually and definitively subverted through fraud and intentional manipulation of the voting machines and by extrapolation, the state of Michigan. MCL 168.797C requires Secretary of State Benson to hold a copy of the voting machine source code in trust. She is also required to analyze and test the software at least annually. Through discovery, Ms. Benson acknowledged that she has violated this law, yet the Michigan Senate failed to mention this clear violation of Michigan law, which provides clear evidence of voter fraud. On March 9th, 2021, the Michigan Court of Claims ruled that Secretary of State Benson violated the Administrative Procedures Act when she issued her signature verification and voter notification standards. The Michigan Senate report failed to highlight the implications of this violation of law, which can be used to dump hundreds of thousands of ballots into tabulators. At the same time, the Michigan Senate failed to precisely deal with any of the 19 reports released in the Antrim County case. Rather, they took a very pedestrian and cursory view of the evidence by making broad conclusions on very technical and detailed reports. This demonstrates a complete lack of comprehension or intentional disregard. Senator McBroom's report demonstrates a complete lack of of understanding of elections and the purpose of audits. He declares the most effective way to verify the results is to simply count all ballots by hand. Yet he fails to recognize or acknowledge that every effort to count paper ballots is shut down. Senator McBroom, you cannot declare the solution is to count paper ballots, but then permit a lawless secretary of state to deny the very remedy you promote. You have subpoena power pursuant to MCL 4.101, yet you refuse to use it. Coincidentally, the Michigan Senate has also suppressed information through internal unconstitutional nondisclosure agreements put in place to hide information from constituents and to avoid FOIA requests. On the other hand, we are seeking meaningful public hearings and forensic audits that will provide transparency. This is quite the contrast. The Michigan Constitution guarantees every voter the absolute right to audit the results of the statewide elections. This right is self-executing, meaning we do not need permission from any branch of the government. Yet we are continuously and illegally blocked from inspecting equipment, poll books, or ballots. The Constitution is on the side of freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, and freedom to redress grievances without unconstitutional and illegal threats of criminal prosecution from corrupt politicians. But Senator McBroom, a self-avowed never-Trumper and progressive ideologue, is using his position to quash the free speech of millions of people. He would rather subvert the Constitution than read mean tweets. Even more outrageous is the call to prosecute his political adversaries. Frankly, Dana Nessel should be laughing at the call for prosecution of free speech. Senator McBroom has no right to dictate content. He's acting as a tyrant, not a public official. His report is a hit piece against people he doesn't agree with. Notice he failed to interview anyone with an opposing view. We fully expect this unlawful report and its suppressive content will lead to the recall of Senator McBroom in due course. On June 23rd, 2021, the same day as the Michigan Senate released its poorly drafted document, Rasmussen Reports released a poll stating that 55% of voters support election audits. 
Barely one in five voters approve of the job their elected representatives are doing, and most rate congressional job performance as poor. The Arizona legislators have nearly completed their audit. Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin legislators are poised to pursue audits. Numerous state attorneys general are reviewing evidence of election fraud. But the Michigan legislators are going on summer break and calling for an investigation of anyone who seeks to investigate election fraud. This is shameful. Despite what our Michigan Senate may desire, the issue of election fraud will not disappear while they attend summer barbecues, nor do we think their constituents will be happy with their unconstitutional attempts to suppress the truth. More on election fraud to follow. Stay tuned. Now, as I've said before, I love Matthew DiPerno and I love that letter. And that is not something Rachel Maddow is going to like to read. Now, along these same corrupt lines, the state of New York is trying to take away Rudy Giuliani's right to practice law. Rudy Giuliani, as I said at the beginning, is the man who brought down the Italian mob in New York. Rudy Giuliani is one of the greatest American lawmen of all time. And they say that they are taking away his right to practice law based on his demonstrably false claims about the 2020 election. And it's odd to me that they use the word demonstrably false because for them to justify that claim, they would have to be able to demonstrate that his claims are false. And Rudy can actually demonstrate that his claims are true. So I wonder if these incompetent communists in New York are actually opening up another door and another platform for Rudy to be able to share the evidence of election fraud with the American public. And I hope that's where it's going. And now, before I go, I want to take note of the fact that I think we may have reached rock bottom as a culture. <laughs> or I should say that the pop culture, the mainstream culture in America has reached rock bottom. I think that would be more accurate. And I said this yesterday because there was some video on the late show with Stephen Colbert, some musical rendition parody of the Proclaimers song, the I Would Walk 500 Miles song, right? And they were saying, I'll shoot 500 vials. Like, this is basically like a pro-vaccination music video. And it's just so disturbing and stupid. And I was like, okay, this is rock bottom for culture. But then not 24 hours later, I see a weird preview for this dating show on Netflix called Sexy Beasts, where the contestants on this dating show basically go into a makeup and prosthetics trailer for like eight hours and are transformed into something completely inhuman, right? So there's like, I think I saw a dolphin and like a mouse and a devil and like some weird chipmunk or something. And so they get two people in these ridiculous outfits and then they put them in a room together and it's, I guess, some version of a blind date. And we're supposed to see if there's really chemistry 
between humans and animals. Apparently, that's something that we're all interested in in now. And obviously, it is an extraordinary level of perversion to even come up with this thing. I don't know who in the world, aside from perverts, would watch it. And I'm a little concerned about what they're trying to normalize here. But my major question about this is if we're going to have a demon fucking a dolphin while a chipmunk watches, isn't that how they created COVID? I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm Your Moderator.substack.com, where you can donate. Or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!